Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Rebecca. I hear we have some people we need to thank this week. We do. We got two new patron supporters, Aaron Wolf and Sharia Viva. I don't think that's a real name. Sure. Hey, Sharia, just email me. I, with, I will pronounce it right again next time. I promise. I also want to apologize to our listeners. I have a bit of a cold this week. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like, I have kind of a pet peeve about listening to people with a cold, but I kind of didn't want to skip the podcast this week, so... um. We're going to go ahead and do it anyway. We got a big week. We got my Walk a Mile in Her Shoes walkathon coming up. We had yep. a whole bunch of listeners donated. Some did it anonymously and left some big chunks of money there. So it's not too late for this walkathon where I will walk a mile in a pair of high heel shoes for domestic violence survivors. Yeah, it actually is a mile. Okay, sure it is. Yes. Just go to uh, crimewriterson.com. You'll see the link there. And we get a lot of requests to find out in advance what we're going to be talking about next week. Well, I actually happen to know that for a change a week in advance. Can you tell me? Yes. You need to listen to the podcast Accused. Oh, yes. Actually, I have downloaded those episodes. It's eight episodes long. Okay. We're talking about it next week. I promise, Kevin... And our listeners, you will not regret it. The podcast is called Accused. It's what we're listening to next week. Now let me just go grab some tissues and I guess we'll uh, start the show. Okay, well you're gone. I'm going to roll it. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we're going to discuss CBS's look at one of the biggest cold cases of my lifetime, the Jean Benet Ramsey case. This primetime investigation is drawing mixed marks in terms of substance, style, and potential consequences. We're also going to talk to a leading attorney in the field of defamation and ask whether those being accused of crimes they haven't been convicted of have a leg to stand on in court. We'll also touch on the latest episode of the In the Dark podcast. Joining me to get all that done is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Stay away. <laughs> this closet is way too small. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're going to go down. I'm already starting to feel it. And also on the line with us is... <coughs> yuck. <coughs> okay, don't make yourself cough for real. It's disgusting. And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And also with us is our favorite negative Nancy crime noir fiction novelist, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello from the other side, Rebecca. (laughs) Okay, Adele. That's such Uh, a creepy stalker song, by the way. I I haven't really focused on it too much, but... She says, hello from the other side. I must have called a thousand times. I'm like, really? A thousand? Are you just figuring this out? No, the song's been out for like a year and a half. Yeah. It's kind of like- I saw when Kevin did his little parody. Didn't you do a little parody last year? Yeah. I was kind of like, a thousand times? Like, you could have left a voicemail. Yeah. (laughs) 
It's not like I have a landline. It's a little pathetic. And then we said hello from the outside. There's the outside. I actually, because I wasn't sure, because again, I, I, I had to look up the lyrics to make sure I was getting it right. It's both. But it says other side and it says outside. Yeah. So wait, hmm. when you say you had to look up the lyrics to make sure you were getting it right, is that because you wanted to like perform it in your automobile as you were driving around? Is that why? No, it's because when you said hello, Toby, usually I just kind of think of it as it's like coming Happening. from Laura to me. It's like, do I know any ways to say hello in a different language? <laughs> but then I'm sort of starting to run kind of low. <laughs> Got a few like in my back pocket for some time. Right. So I was like, oh, well, maybe this is Adele song. So I looked it up. Oh. So I would Sweet make Jesus. more of a fool of myself than I already am. Wow. So I have a confession on that, Toby. Yes. Not about Adele. But so I was trying to like top Toby last week. And I think I said cheerio. Apparently uh, that means goodbye. goodbye. <laughs> Kevin has a confession. I do. Yes, he once called a girl when he was in high school ah. and <laughs> played the song. Where's this coming from? <laughs> oh, this is good. I think it was it was junior Keep high. Going. It was I think it was eighth grade. Did you like, would you like to tell the story? Because it was you, not me, that happened. It was a girl. Yeah. Thank God nobody from school listens to this podcast because I don't tell anybody <laughs> about it. <clears throat> there was this girl, and we'll just call her K. And K. <laughs> <laughs> was her name Maura Murray? Not Kathy. It was Kathy, not Kathy. So, and so I didn't have the courage to like ask her out or anything. So I looked up her telephone number in the telephone book, which was this big book, kids, that we would get delivered to our house. For free. For free. And it had a white pages section and a yellow pages section. And I looked up her number and I called. And when she picked up, she said, you know, she said, this is Kay. And I took the handset from the telephone and I put it down on my tape recorder and I started to play Hello by Lionel Richie. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's a move. It's a move. Which is, by the way, when you're doing that, a really long song. Yeah, yeah. And you don't know if the and, person's hung up or not. Yeah. I was like, do I, do I like wait for the whole chorus to go through? Another verse? The intro is really long. Oh, no, you just got to go right to the... Oh, so you had it queued up? You had it queued up to the first lyric, yeah. Good, good. Um, Yeah, and she had hung up by the time I... <laughs> just... Wow. Yeah. When you said I put it down, I wasn't necessarily expecting Lionel Richie to be the next. All I have to say is, <laughs> ladies in podcast audience land, back off. He's I know. all mine. <laughs> all over the world, people just went sploosh. No, they did not. No, they did not. So, uh, Laura, how did that chili cook off with the moose go? Well, I wasn't able to pass off the moose. And, oh. uh, I know, I know. Well, apparently, my husband was like, no, no, it has to be like USDA stamped or something to go into oh. the chili cook off. Oh. To feed to the, the public. That's probably yeah. like giving them tainted meat. Would have <laughs> I know. That would have been a real story. So we did not win. There was some shenanigans going on, though. Um, what? The people, yeah, there was. So the police officers next to us ran out of chili, uh -huh. and they were putting like Hormel chili in a can in their pot, and what? then somehow they won. Yeah. I mean, seriously. This does not improve the image of the law police. enforcement in America when they're faking it at the chili cook-off. Or the yeah. level of our chili of Hormel. <laughs> That's what I was saying. And then um, somebody made the mistake of letting me have like the fire department megaphone. So. Oh, no. Yeah. Did you call them out? Sweet. No, I made up little slogans trying to sell our chili, like, you know, our ladies are hot, but so is our chili and things like that. Nice. That's really, really clever, Laura. Very clever. It was very, <laughs> it's very clever, you know. It's better than our ladies are covered times. in cheese and so is our chili. You should you should just take in the megaphone and put it in front of a tape recorder and play it hello by Lionel Richie. Okay, wait, wait, there's so many we could do. Our chili is chunky and so are our ladies. Oh, God. 
Nice. No, right? Yeah. Nice. Just because that's true of your lady doesn't mean that all the ladies are. So, Toby, our I am- Our lady smell of cumin and so does our chili. Okay. <laughs> enough? Okay. okay. That's enough. We're supposed to. This is supposed to be a literary podcast. No wonder we're no longer on the literature charts Liter- on iTunes. <laughs> So, Toby, are you still there? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm right here. Earlier today, I sent you a list of the items that our listeners purchased on Amazon.com in the last two weeks, and I'm wondering if you had a chance to look at it and pick out a couple of favorites for us. I, I picked out a few favorites. All right. Would you like to read them for us? Okay. Let's get a slow uh, jam going. The first one is, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Skin Cuticles Physical Fusion UV Defense SPF 50. Oh, so it's like sunscreen. Cuticles. Skin cuticles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So these next lotion you put on your fingernails? I don't know. I don't want my fingernails to burn. These next two are sort of more confusing to me because I can't quite picture what they are, but they're clothing. Maiden form sleek smoothers, high waist boy short shapewear. Mm hmm. It's underpants to make you look skinnier. I'm wearing them right now in the boy shorts. Yep. All right. Yeah. Nice. And then the other one, and you're probably wearing this as well, Kevin. The uh, Fantasy of England Bell Underwire Bra (laughs) 32G. But the the interesting thing is it's made out of bamboo, apparently. What? Well, that's a fiber. So it's 32G bamboo. Is it a bra for a panda? I, it's unclear. No, uh, no, that, that's a fabric. This is a bamboo fabric. It's like it's like tensile. Right. It's like very silky and nice. Well, I, right. I suggest whoever purchased that to send Toby a photo. No. Yeah, easy. Um, <laughs> here we go. Nurse Hattie ketone strips, 125 count, professional grade to benefit your ketogenic. Yeah, I don't get Nurse that. Ratchet? What was that? Nurse Hattie? Wow. Nurse Hattie. Oh, But well. you know what? It also had an A with an umlaut at the end, but mm. I wasn't sure how to do that. All right. Naturewise Garcinia Cambogia extract, not synthetic like all 80% or 90% HCA products. <laughs> well, take uh, that. That's in the title? This, that was in parentheses, oh. but not synthetic. All right. This is from home. It s- simply says ultra absorbent. Nice. <laughs> That's it. You need that after the lube launcher. You do. Oh, God, no. (laughs) You do. Thank you for bringing this into the gutter. All right, is it time to swell the music and come back to the actual Let's content Let's go back now? to the, yes. All right. Last week, CBS aired a two-part series re-examining one of the most infamous cold cases of my lifetime, the 1996 death of six-year-old JonBenet Ramsey. This is in addition to a similar special on A&E, and this December, Lifetime will mark the 20th anniversary of Jean Benet's murder with both a scripted movie and a documentary investigating the late Patsy Ramsey for her daughter's murder. So first, before we get into the special that we all watched this week, let's just talk about the case first. Uh, Laura, I have said on the podcast before that I find this case interesting. Do you think it's interesting and do you think it's still interesting? I do think it's interesting. I think it was just really unique because you have this little girl who really is like a little grown up in the way that she's portrayed and the pictures that you see of her. Um, You have this wealthy family. You're in Colorado. And just the fact that there seems to be no closure in sight in this case. I mean, it's like there's all these theories. Everybody's had so many theories and yet nothing ever materializes. So it really is a mystery. And I think that for me is is part of what keeps me kind of interested in this case. Toby, what role do you think the optics like Jean Benet's having been like a child beauty pageant participant? I mean, the family lived in this big house that was, you know, kind of cluttered and like a little off. What role do you think those optics play in this case continuing to be interesting to people? Well, so the only thing I really knew about it before this whole 20th anniversary stuff is remembering 
John Bonet, the way she was portrayed, the, like the pictures they show of her and like the video of her like dressed up as a cowgirl or something mm-hmm. and thinking it was really, it was lurid, you know, it, it really, it spoke to this weird sexualization of these little girls and then it spawned like a whole bunch of reality TV shows about like the little kid pageant stuff. So I think that was for me learning about like the actual facts of the case, which I just had not known anything about before. I could see a little bit more why people were interested in it. You know, at the time when it happened 20 years ago and I was living in DC, it was all over the place, but I didn't really delve into it beyond like, oh my God, this looks like totally morbid and depressing. So I didn't know about the ransom note and about all all these things, Mm -hmm. apparent implication of the parents and and all this kind of stuff. So it's a long, long way of saying uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I do think I I do think the image of the girl was part of what kind of had people's interest. Yeah, the optics, as they say. I think that's what drove the national media coverage. Right. Because I think for a lot of people, that one aspect of the case, we're not aware that that was a thing. That it was there were, very foreign. Yes, that there were, and in parts of the U.S., I mean, that's you know actually very common, and they're very popular. And you know, you think like, how young can these beauty pageants be? And remember, this is like actually like 15 years before Little Miss Sunshine and Toddlers and Tiaras and Honey Boo Boo and all right. that stuff. <laughs> but this was the genesis of it. This was the genesis in, in the national consciousness. But you're right, there was a an odd sexualization of really young girls. That's how we perceived it at the time, we, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in some cases you could still kind of perceive it that way. Well, how how I mean, else do you perceive it? Well, yeah, but I, I think what's interesting is that, it's so funny, I do remember that being the thing about the case that made it freakish to people. Yeah. Like this little girl, that her mother dyed her hair, that she wore those little like flipper teeth, that she had like, you know, all those weird pageantry sort of trappings around her. But I almost think that the pop culture phenomenon of these things now becoming like a thing people know about Mm -hmm. I almost feel like when I was watching the old footage of her watching this documentary I almost felt like okay she was in pageants like it didn't have the same shock value to me today as I remember it having back then yeah well the seal was kind of broken with Jean Benet and so that was an odd element and it made people think this is an odd family right which fueled all this other stuff because it was a peculiar homicide now were there evidence and facts that you had forgotten that this documentary reminded you existed? yeah and I think it, it was good that way I didn't know anything about the 911 call having any significance the ransom note was always something that was really weird and I think it was I think very early on anybody was paying attention that that was that was a bullshit thing. Um, With the ransom note? The ransom note. Right, because the pad underneath had the writing imprinted on the pad underneath. I forgot about those details. Right, right. Just the content of this elaborate, you know, ransom note in and of itself. And there's certain clues in there. Like, anytime someone is, uh, like, saying, we are, you know, we, we are doing this, we is always I. Yeah. It's always, it's always one person. Right. You know, we have a bomb or whatever it is. But, yeah, to go on and on, and I remember the very peculiar number of being 118000 which was the same amount as his bonus. So, yeah, there were a lot of those details which were really interesting, and it was good to kind of come back to it and look at it again. One of the things that I had forgotten about, which surprised me, is I actually read one of the books about this case many years ago, but it is easy to sort of wonder how much of this is like BS and, and spin versus reality. 
I did forget how uncooperative the parents were and how they refused to talk to the cops for months and months and months. Laura, that really stuck out to me watching this, you know, just looking at the timeline of um, one of the things I think the show did well. You know, we'll talk about, I think, some of the flaws that we all saw in the production of the show. But one of the things that I think it did well was they showed that timeline across the bottom of the screen mm-hmm. to sort of show, like, this is when the murder happened and then this is when the parents talked. It was like five months later that they had their first interview with police and then they gave that bizarre press conference where they said, so we've accomplished this, as if it was an accomplishment that they finally spoke to the police after five months. That's unusual, right, for people whose daughter's been murdered to not speak to the police for five months? That is just bizarre. I mean, to me, that just is such a red flag without speculating too much. But, you know, the parents are the first people that you talk to. Right. And then the immediate family members. I mean, it's like the other podcasts that we're listening to and other stories we've listened to about missing children or children that have been abducted. It's like, why wouldn't you want to talk to the police to help solve the case and to wait five months? I'm surprised that law enforcement didn't do something to compel them to speak before that point. Right. To me, it kind of speaks to the power they had in the community. I mean, Boulder is a wealthy community. They were wealthy people in this wealthy Mm -hmm. community. They were very sort of cloistered. Well, that was one of the two major findings that the CBS folks put out. And one of them has to do with sort of the power and the politics around it and why certain things may not have gotten done. Right. Now, Toby, were you surprised to see such a cast of A-list investigators on this show? We had Jim Clemente, uh, well-known FBI profiler, Laura Richards, who's an advocate, profiler, Scotland Yard trained, and uh, Henry Lee, and then the other two guys whose names I forget. One of them looks just like uh, Dean Strang. He was the linguist guy, and then the other one. And I'm sorry. The other one was uh, Fitzgerald. Audience, it's my cold. Uh, yeah. It kept Is me it from Dr. a- Spitz? Is that, was yes, that the- Yes, uh, yeah. yes, Toby, were you surprised to see you know this like dream team A-list cast of character analysts on this true crime product that was aired on CBS? I don't know if I was surprised. I wasn't quite sure how to interpret like how much work the individuals were actually doing on this. Yeah. You know, because sometimes, I mean, I think, and this was part of the problem with the production is that they'd always sit around a table and then somebody would get up and like examine the uh, note, which they had blown up. And he'd be like pointing out different things about the language it just seemed weird, you know, quite honestly. Is he really giving this information to them? Right now? For the first time? Right. You know, there's one time when um, the two main people go and they show up at the um, forensic examiner's place and are, he's like, I've got some findings. And they're like, oh, good. It's like, seriously? Like, <laughs> you flew all the way out to Colorado not knowing if he's going to have findings and then, you know, he just springs them on you when you walk in? Yeah. So, like, I, I thought... You know, a fair amount of the stuff that when they were actually talking about the technical stuff that they do, I thought was interesting. The learning behind it and the theory behind it is probably authentic, but the setting was so inauthentic that it was it was a little bit hard to make that leap for me, at least. I actually 100 percent agree with you. And one of the things that really distracts me, and this is something that comes up actually in our house because Kevin and I do participate in TV projects sometimes, and I always just feel like, man, just sit me in a chair and talk to me. I can do that, but I don't want to get up and walk around and like pretend that I'm doing something. <laughs> I, I hate that whenever they ask us to shoot B-roll, like we're sitting together looking through files. I just hate it because I know, I know that when I'm watching a show like this, I was so distracted by the continuity stuff. So it would be like, there's the outfit that she wore ostensibly when she first arrived, and she's like driving with Jim in the car to the war room. 
And then you see her in that same outfit days later, allegedly, when she's like knocking on doors. It's like, no, clearly this is all stuff they shot on this day. Um, And I, I find that distracting, just like I find it distracting that they've built a reconstruction of the Ramsey house. Oh, my God. For no reason. Right, Laura? This is the part, Rebecca. I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Are you serious? They are are building a fucking house? Like, I'm sorry. And then when they went in and there was the pineapple in the milk on the table. Yep. Everything on the shelves and everything was... And they're like, wait, we must Cobwebs. go look at the pineapple again with the curdled milk because it's been sitting here for five days. I'm sure that wasn't milk. I'm sure that was glue. Yeah, probably. Because <laughs> That's what, what I wanted learned, to yeah. know. Yeah. The Crisco ice cream. Yeah, because milk shows up looking very blue under the light. So that's why Elmer's glue is what they usually put on. Yeah, I was distracted by that, too, because there really was no reason for them to actually. I mean, if they were going to construct well, the rooms to be a prop where they would show walking around. I mean, even if they were just white rooms and they showed where the staircase was, like that would make some sense for demonstration purposes. But hanging all the decor on the walls, to me, it just felt, hanging the old Halloween decorations on the walls did not- no, there were Halloween decorations like hanging downstairs. Like oh. they, yeah. the house was very cluttered, which uh-huh. I actually think is an interesting detail. I know it was Christmas Day, the day after Christmas, and houses are messy around that time. But there was just like a lot of junk around the house, which I've always found like a little bit interesting. And two young kids? Are you kidding me? Right. But they're also really wealthy, and she wanted immaculate gardens. That was always a detail yeah, that I, I found interesting. I remember that being in the book that I read. But All what right. were you going to say about the house, Kevin? Well, I see that there are two things going on here. You have the investigators bringing their professional expertise and you also have this big TV production right and so unlike some of the things that we've been on this is like high budget so to rebuild the house as perhaps an investigative tool was not the purpose of rebuilding the house. I think they were building sets it was a prop. for the recreations right. that doubled as, okay, we need to do this thing with the cellar window and here's the train room and you know the kitchen again. I think it was just sort of like two birds, one stone. We may as well because we're going through all this trouble to get this stuff down to the details. And it had its purpose in demonstrating certain theories. But yeah, I was kind of like, wow. It was wow. distracting. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> We keep seeing like the executive producer come out, you know, with his earpiece and, you know, his utility belt and all the grips are painting and stuff like that. No, normally I would like that kind of transparency, but it mm-hmm. was there was actually a lot of really interesting information. Yeah. Especially in the first hour or so of this that I felt I wasn't quite enjoying as much as I would because of the artifice. Well, let me say one thing because I think we haven't said it yet and I really want to make it clear. Jim Clemente is like, he's great. And like he has his own podcast and I know a lot of our listeners listen to it. I like him even better now, like seeing him on TV in action and that thing. I mean, he's very sharp and very compelling. And the stuff that he said, I really liked. I really dig profiling. And I thought he, he was very smart. And I think that the flaws that our, the show has have very little to do with what the investigators were doing. I think it has more to do with the TV productions and the demands that a TV show places on what the ending should be. So I think that Dr. Lee and Jim Clemente and, you know, all the other people there are bringing honest opinions. But I, I've been there and it's kind of like, OK, can you do the thing where you walk down the street and walk past the camera and pretend like we're not here? There's a lot of that stuff. That Doesn't mean I have to like to, it. Right? No, it's a lot of that stuff. There's an artifice to it that the, the, the real people get pulled into. Yeah, I actually I did tweet out an, an article and, and some people got back to me on Twitter and were like, oh, we you know, really value Jim Clemente, and I hadn't listened to their podcast, which I then did, which I think is actually really good. Like, I'm 
I'm kind of surprised I hadn't listened to it before. She's on it too, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've, yeah. I've but it was it. good. I mean, they, unlike me, they know what they're talking about. <laughs> right. So like I kind of listened to it and, and, and found that I learned quite a bit. And I thought their podcast seemed like the best bits from the show. They didn't have to have the artifice. Occasionally he would just say something like, knowing how somebody was killed is an important part of any investigation. Uh, Duh. Yeah, that, that <laughs> seems like that would probably be pretty important. Yeah, it's a, um, it sounds like a framing device that a producer yeah, wrote to help which, frame which, a scene. Yeah. Which, it's not what he says on the on the podcast. So anyway, I'm glad you said that because I kind of, if you hadn't, I wanted to say something similar when they're in a different environment. Right. The things that were, I, I found kind of annoying about this show are just kind of non-factors and right. you can just kind of enjoy their knowledge. Right. You know, it, it really d- demonstrates the difference between a documentary, a so-called documentary like this, and like a Frontline style show mm-hmm. where they mm-hmm. literally, like on a front, if this were filmed like Frontline, they would show Dr. Lee in his own lab doing right. the test he did. And they would show Jim and Laura in an office talking. They would well, show- I was thinking about that guy when we were doing, did the one about the SWAT team that was mm-hmm. on American mm-hmm. Eye. Right. Oh, yeah, and they went great. to that house that was all shot up yep. and he was doing the crime scene stuff there. Yep. It was just very different. It was, it, it's not clean. But while, while they could make a very compelling podcast episode, the two of them or the six of them around a microphone, that scene with them in sort of that conference room, you can't do four hours of that on television. So yeah. it means that they need all these other things. Right. But they didn't have to bring them all together either. I, but I guess it's cheaper. Well, it's cheaper to bring everybody to a sound. That was well, a, no, I, I think was, that was intentional because they want to come to a, a, a consensus right. at the end. Or make it look like they're coming to a consensus. Or make it look, yeah. All right, let's talk about some of the stuff that they looked at. The first thing that we see them do is this very protracted audio enhancement exercise with lots of waves, just like we're looking at right now, recording our podcast, and the world's largest mixer that the guy is like bringing faders up and down, which, by the way, is not how you take noise out of audio when it's digital, but that's okay. That's, again, it's another thing. There's a producer saying, we need some B-roll with some cutaway shots. Can you turn a knob? Um, Now, Kevin, you and I have listened to a lot of tape in Mm -hmm. our lives. Could you hear anything close to what they said they were hearing in that tape? This is the only time the show reminded me of another show and reminded me of like Ghost Hunters. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was like, I'm like, I'm not hearing that. When, when I don't. When a Ghost Hunter, when they're like, listen, listen to the whisper and it's like, yeah. hello. Someone just said hello. So, yeah. No, yeah. it's like, is that name? I heard them say, I want to take a wrench. You exactly, know, it just, exactly. Yeah, you know, you just kept looking at the visual. I kept looking at like that waveform and like, okay, here's the inaudible part. And I was just like. Somebody tell me what it says, because all I hear is a bunch of popping. Yeah, I don't hear anything. Um, so I think of all the demonstrations that they gave, I think that was sort of the the one where you had to kind of just, okay, go along. It's kind of like, I guess. But I had heard that that isn't actually not a new exercise, mm-hmm. that that tape had been analyzed by a company called Aerospace Corporation, I think it was, back in the 1990s, yep. where they did noise reduction on that eight seconds. And what they said they heard was that word for word right so i didn't hear it yeah okay yeah, but i didn't i didn't hear anything my son was like this is bullshit yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i think jim said on twitter like you know through the headphones you could hear it clear as day and as somebody that lives with a bunch of headphones i could probably that could believe be that you that probably could, could hear it a lot better than you would on tv but still the idea that perhaps they have just discovered something that nobody else had heard of before right, right. Well, they're also putting all the information together, like in a scrapbook in a way that we haven't seen it all together before. Now, I want to get to that the next piece of information. And Toby, which I always thought was the most interesting part of the case in terms of just the amount of analysis that could be done in it, was that ransom note. There's all those linguistic issues. You know, there's all this stuff that we saw, the breakdown of the language. And I, I don't know about you guys. I kind of have a problem with people saying, you know, this person isn't reacting the way they're supposed to 
when, you know, you're supposed to be a certain way when you're feeling grief or shock or whatever. But the ransom note is the ransom note. It's in writing. So you can analyze it in a different way. Did you think that part was as, I don't know, fascinating as I thought that it was, Toby? Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's the most interesting part of the whole thing. Honestly, Drink. yes. So the first thing that kind of came to mind for me is when they put in the $118,000 is what we want. And that was what his bonus was. Mm -hmm. Like my immediate thought was he wants to be caught. There's some kind of signals being thrown out there and I could be entirely wrong. But that, that was the first thing that sprung to mind. It's like, why would you put in that detail? The whole thing is just very, very weird. So if their theory is correct and it was the brother and then the parents are trying to cover it up, the idea that you would come up with that note, even like under a lot of stress where you're like, well, let's ask for the amount of my last bonus and let's <laughs> pretend it's like an international, you know, crime cartel and it's just odd. I loved how they um, looked at the way that the you know alleged kidnapper was characterizing himself. You know, no one calls themselves part of a small foreign faction. Like you're going to make yourself sound scary. You're not going to make yourself sound diminutive. Right. We're part of a foreign faction that we're just small. You know, yeah. or put the money in an attaché. Exactly. Right. The word it was very <laughs> strange. The and then and then misspelling misspelling business. The faction of investigators who believed in the intruder theory. You know, some say that they looked at that figure. It indicated to them that the intruder was somebody who knew John Ramsey, knew him very well, and he mm -hmm. they picked that number because they were angry with him. It had something to do with business. They knew that was his amount. Basically, they're trying to reclaim his bonus. It was somebody and, who worked at ADP, like cutting the payroll checks. Yeah, you know, and that's what it was. And you have to you have to remember then it you come down to either one or two factions. It's either an intruder, it's the rest of the whole world or it's the people on the inside. If it's an intruder, whether it's random or it's targeted or whatever, the way the ransom note comes in is you have to figure out where does that play in the time frame of the actual crime? Did somebody go break in with the thought of kidnapping or did they go in with the thought of murder or did they go in with the thought of sexual assault? Or writing a 20-minute ransom note. Or writing a 20... And then what went wrong? Right. Did they go and write the note and then try to kidnap her and something happened? Who leaves a ransom note along with the body? The whole... Everything in this case as it's coming out and all the details are so out of line to me and so far out there that I just have to wonder if this had happened somewhere else where these people didn't have this much influence, what would have happened with this case? Because... Just looking at this, it just is not even remotely true. So it just, it really struck me as something as I'm watching this over again. I'm like, what in the hell is going on here? And why didn't somebody at the time follow up on this? I, I don't know. Everything about it was staged. Yes. So the thing that I've found, and I kind of want to run it by you guys, because I think you've got more experience with this stuff than me, was that where she had those two marks on her back. And they thought it was coming from a taser. Yeah. And the only way they could test that was to find a, a cop volunteer and then tase them twice. A really big cop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and don't they have, I mean, isn't there like a book or something that has like common marks left by, you does think every so. time somebody has marks on their back, do they have to like test tase somebody? Just to see if that's what it was. I think they have like that body farm. Like, yeah, couldn't they you, like, do not yeah. have to do that. Yeah. There are there are pictures you can Google taser marks. We yeah. all, we all yeah. know that. Instead, it looks like the measure and the size of it looks like it was done by the piece of toy uh, train, track. train track, which, which we know there was plenty of around. There was plenty it's of just around. So 
It was so strange that they had. There's a 200 pound cop. You play Jean Benet and we'll tase you. Right. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yes. Like knock you off the, the yeah. thing. And then that's not enough. We'll, we're going to do it again. Oh, but the conclusion that, that she would have screamed and not been immobilized, I think it was pretty well played out. And the fact that those marks just don't line up to a taser, I think also was very well Yes, but it was, it was a more tasteful demonstration because at least they didn't have a, a six year old girl lying on the table and have a 10 year old boy come out and tase. Eleven to come out, and everybody their nose starts bleeding, and everybody blows up. Oh, did you see those guys at the whatever it was, the Emmys yes, or whatever? They were adorable. Oh, I love their yeah. The big thing that we didn't talk about, which is the other big takeaway, and it's not who is responsible for her death; it's the political cover-up that they found and exposed, which was that the grand jury had voted to indict John and Patsy Ramsey on charges of being accessories to someone, and the district attorney never went forward with it. Right. And there were all these people, including the co-lead investigator in the case, who came forward and said, I saw all this stuff. You know, the FBI guy who was there said all this stuff, and it just never came through. And so if anything is worth pursuing, and I don't mean that the finding John Bonet's killer isn't worth pursuing, but if there's something that could actually be accomplished in a realistic way, you know, it could be exposing this sort of legal corruption, if you will. Right. I think that's like an ongoing theme in our podcast is like, you're better off being guilty and rich than innocent and poor. And this is just like another example. I mean, if they are guilty, but the chance to find them guilty was suppressed. So I, I do want to talk, though, about the most controversial demonstration in the show. The point in the show where I know I and I think millions of other people just thought, yeah, that was maybe a little much. Um, and that was when the investigators brought out a 10-year-old boy to hit a dummy on the head with a mag light. Ostensibly, it was the only way to demonstrate that Jean Benet's head wound could have been caused by someone other than an adult. Now, Laura, one of the things that struck me when I was watching this is that... Was a flashlight? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> was a mag light. Uh, now, Laura, one of the things that I was thinking about when I saw this demonstration was that if Jim Clemente's stated purpose of this is to, you know, forward some new theories and some new evidence that maybe law enforcement will pay attention to, the idea of bringing out a 10-year-old boy to do this demonstration, and then their theory at the end is that it was a 9-year and 10-month-old boy who actually did the crime... Is that a prejudicial demonstration or am I nuts to think that? No, I think it definitely, you know, it's like they had reached their conclusion ahead of time in this case in terms of where they were going to steer the show. And, you know, I definitely think setting it up like that, it's definitely tilting the scale a little bit in a way that's not exactly fair. They wanted to demonstrate a lot of these theories. So it's like, OK. People don't believe this, so we're going to actually show you that. Now, I, there isn't like a crash test dummy kind of thing where they can run a skull down a, a track into a you know into a wall at 30 miles an hour and watch an airbag pop out. I mean, the only way to do it is to simulate. And I also think you know, the thing I was actually more interested in was the fact about the blood, that there was no blood evidence. Some took that to mean uh, she was killed someplace else or why couldn't there be blood certainly on this flashlight or a flashlight you know, the doctor said that you could, with a child that age, there's enough elasticity with the skin and the scalp that you could make that kind of wound and not draw blood. I mean, I think they were definitely telegraphing something when they demonstrated that the flashlight could have made the wound by having a 10-year-old do it. I thought it was tasteless. I did. I'm not, that's my opinion. I don't know. That's my opinion. 
Is it okay for me to say that? You have an opinion. It was tasteless. It was it was tasteless. Yeah, but you know what? When you look at that whole, the production value, they built the whole house, and they made it look like the way the house was in 1996, I would say that's pretty tasteless. They should have been downloading the Havenly app and nice. redecorated right, right. that whole house. There we go. That's a transition. I mean, beauty plays a larger role in our lives than we might think. So why does having a beautifully designed home feel like a fantasy? Well, because around here, our place is pretty messy which is why we need the Havenly app. We do. It's a great little tool that you can use because getting a real interior decorator kind of sucks. You know, they're probably going to walk around and be really snooty and talk about like all... Judgy. Judgy. And talk about your crappy furniture, which is kind of crappy. So that's why with the people from Havenly, they'll give you some interior design device. And if you do want to upgrade that crappy couch or that really bad lamp... You know, do something with that train room, you know? Take all those train tracks out of there, put in a, you know, a man cave. Sectional. A sectional. (laughs) The folks from Havenly will help you do that. So help keep your design dreams alive. If you're feeling inspired, use the Havenly app, download it, get their free advice, and then make it happen. The Havenly online interior designer will walk you through their easy four-step process and create the dream home you deserve. Download the app today at the Apple App Store and use code CRIME at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. That's Havenly. And use code CRIME, crime. at checkout to save 20%. Code Cr- CRIME. Crime. All right. I kind of don't even want to rate that transition, but I'm going to give it a... Um a B minus. What about you, Toby? I've got a couple things. First of all, oh, geez, I got notes. <laughs> okay, there, there's some sausage making that that I don't think our listeners are going to realize happened there. B, it's a little harsh on interior designers. <laughs> really tough. My sister's an interior designer. She's not oh. a snob. She's not a um, snob. I'm, I'm I'm joking. She's not. She's not an interior designer. Oh, um, <laughs> but she is a snob. <laughs> she's a huge snob. No, she's not a snob either. Um, and then the third thing. Yeah, otherwise it was good. Yeah, B+. Plus. <laughs> what do you think, Laura? <laughs> I'm just so confused. I think I'm going to have to actually try that app now because we've been talking about it several times and uh, it's time to figure out my living room. Yep, and there's no grade for you this week, Kevin. Maybe our listeners will discover in the outtakes why we're so reticent to grade you this week. Oh, editing. All right. Well, after this JonBenet special aired on CBS, news broke that Burke Ramsey may sue the network for airing the special because it strongly implies that he is his sister's murderer. Now, we've talked a lot on this show about the ethics of true crime reporting and issues around defamation and pop culture. There is, however, a lot of legal and ethical gray area around these issues. And of course, we, the four of us, are all informed by our experiences and training as journalists and published authors. So we've worked with editors and lawyers who've told us what we can say and what we can't say. And we have our own moral codes around it as a result. But what does the law actually say? I have good news. I reached out to someone to get some answers, and I'm going to play that tape for you now. Uh, It's about 10 minutes long. My name is Ann Bartow, and I'm a law professor. I teach at the University of New Hampshire School of Law, and I'm also the director of the Franklin Pierce Center for Intellectual Property here at University of New Hampshire School of Law. So in terms of just the basics of defamation, this is something that we've talked about before, but can you just explain why, for instance, I couldn't say that you killed somebody on this podcast right now? Well, you know, actually, it's kind of interesting because there are many ways that you could actually say that. Um, It gets very lawyerly, and I think that's kind of annoying for people, but it's true. 
if you framed it in a way that really kind of skirted around uh, defamation law, you probably could sit and get away with it. Now, if you are advised by attorneys, attorneys by nature are very cautious, so they're not, they don't want you walking up to the line fearing you would step over. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, in the United States, we really prioritize free speech, and even our defamation law really cuts in favor of open, freewheeling discourse. And many times that's a really good thing, unless you're the person about whom things are said that becomes a real burden to you. So you could say, in my opinion, it seems likely the evidence shows you killed somebody, and that would probably not be defamatory. Now, what if you have an audience that is big? So what if you are, say, a television network, or you have Mm -hmm. a podcast with millions of listeners, um, and what if that statement could and does negatively impact the private citizen that you're talking about? Unfortunately for that private citizen, largely we say your reputation and your sense of pride in your reputation has to give way to our you know, priority, which is free speech. So it's really hard unless you meet the threshold of defamation, which is a pretty high threshold, unless the statement is widely publicized. We could say published, but it's publicized because that can be online, and it's false, and it's injurious, and it doesn't fit within one of the narrow privileges that are out there, unless you can prove all those things in court against the the speaker, then defamation is not really going to be too availing for you. I'm curious about the having to prove the lie part of it. In terms of my having to prove that it's false, is their barrier really high for me? Or is it just a question of me being able to say, I've never been arrested, I've never been accused by law enforcement, I've never been a suspect? Like, how would I prove that's false? Or is the, is the burden on the defendant, say I sue that person, to prove that it's true? So if you are the plaintiff in a lawsuit and a plaintiff, in a, you know, suing somebody for defamation, then the burden of proof is on you in a civil suit. So you would have to prove that it was false. And use what muster whatever evidence you had, and it, it's from what you described, there'd be a fair amount of evidence. But you have to remember, it's defamation. If they can prove it's true, they can win, but they can also win, or at least avoid uh, civil liability, if they can prove it was opinion. Right. And then they can give the basis for opinion. So that's really the direction most of this goes. So when you know you talk about sort of high-profile cases. If the accusation is not directly made, you killed X, but here's this piece of evidence and that piece of evidence and this suggestion and this scientific evidence and this witness said, et cetera, et cetera, then if it's framed in a certain way to be opinion, then you probably haven't reached the defamation threshold. Right. And the sort of the embedded theory in our, our First Amendment law is that you don't need to go to court in defamation, but you just need to push back wherever they're saying that, you need to push back and say the same thing. In other words, if someone in a podcast is implying that you killed someone, then you should be able to get on their podcast if they're decent journalists or make your own podcast and push back that I'm innocent and you know they have a bad motive and those sorts of things that somehow both people speaking the truth will out is at least one, one theory of the First Amendment. Now, we know that's not true, and we also know that people have different levels of power. For example, if you're a publisher of the New York Times, you have a lot more bandwidth than just a simple citizen online. Now, you can start a blog for free right, and try to push back against the New York Times, but there's a huge power imbalance. Then we get into things like journalistic ethics 
where the New York Times might give you some room, you know, to, to respond. They should. I think that they should. We can't always guarantee that. Uh, but that also, is a, at least the theory is, gives you the ability to get your truth out and maybe mitigate some of the damages from the negative statements. Isn't the balance of power shifted in so far as if somebody is accused of a crime in a broadcast medium or online mm-hmm. or in a podcast, right. that they didn't ask to be part of this conversation and therefore why should the burden be upon them to then make their own podcast or respond? It's sort of like the talking to the media thing. It's your right to do it, but it's also your right not to do it if you don't want to, right? Well, you're articulating, interestingly enough, a theory of privacy that really is not really embedded in our jurisprudence. Certainly in a theory of speech law, First Amendment law, and defamation law, people who are public officials or public personas have even less protection from defamation law. But the idea that you have this little bubble of privacy in speech law is just, is just not true. Right. And before the Internet, it was inter- – well, two things changed with the Internet. Before the Internet, often nobody really took a huge interest in you. You know, you could sort of have uh, – you could sort of just blend in the background. If you weren't a celebrity or a public official – um, it was unlikely that um, you know newspapers were going to, unless there was you know some fact, spend a lot of time talking about you. So you had this obscurity protection. Right. But with the internet, it gave a lot of just average people a microphone to talk about their friends, their enemies, their neighbors. So people's names get out there more. So that changed that. Another thing that changed was the different way we treat publishers offline and online. In a traditional print medium, if the New York Times publishes some, you know, something that's false, they themselves could be culpable, right, if it rose to the level of defamation. Right. But on the Internet online, we have the 1996 Congress passed the Communications Decency Act. Most of that was struck down as unconstitutional, but there's a remaining section, Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, which basically online gives publishers a free pass. It says that only the person who did the speaking, in other words, the poster, the writer, the originator of the words, would be liable for defamation, potentially, and that the publisher gets off scot-free. So the online version of the New York Times, if you could post a comment on that, and that was, that was potentially de- defamatory, you, the poster of that defamatory comment, would still be liable, but the New York Times isn't. So in print, they, in print they would be, but online they would not be. So that's true of Twitter or Facebook in those areas. Again, the person who puts the defamatory comment on Facebook or on Twitter is still potentially liable if it rises to the level of defamation. But Facebook and Twitter get off scot-free under Section 230. That's been discussed by many people as the most important law of the Internet. I'm just curious, you, you talked a minute ago about journalistic ethics and you know mm-hmm. what the New York Times might do uh, in terms right. of offering a forum for somebody yep. to say what you said isn't true. I'm curious about that line about journalism, and I know this is a, another evolving field about who's a journalist, who isn't a journalist, right. uh, who is obligated by those ethics. We are, I know in the show that I'm recording this for, going to be talking about the JonBenet Ramsey um, special for CBS on which they looked at evidence in that case and then presented new theories of the crime as their opinions. The question is, though, you know, when you are showing that evidence, when you're presenting it on a format that looks like a news program or feels Mm -hmm. like it or where somebody has said, you know, as a journalist, it's my duty to X, Y, Z. 
Do you see those lines blurring more and more as you look at these cases? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. One of the things that I think we've seen in recent years is an increase in the genre of crime as entertainment. I, I think that's always been true to an extent, but um, and especially true crime as entertainment. So there's that. But on the other hand, you know, that whole Jonathan A. Ramsey thing is fascinating to me. And I, I watched the show. And I don't know what to make of their conclusions, you know, the, but they did, they took a lot of care to suggest it's, it's one of many theories. But I also, uh, you know, having that been around so long, I, you know, there's a part of me that still would very much like to see some justice for John Benet Ramsey. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that there was either corruption or an ethnic in the original investigation, and this show can actually bring that to light and actually at some point result in catching the culprit or at least catching corrupt officials that prevented, you know, capturing the culprit or something along those lines, there's something good about that. There's a, there's a value there uh, to people investigating and suggesting new theories. And, of course, uh, you also, you know, if Burke Ramsey, after what her brother went through in terms of having the parents under suspicion and him being under suspicion and then to be accused by the show, uh, sure, that's a, that's a terrible thing. And if they didn't do it correctly, you know, he may be uh, entitled to, um, you know, bring a defamation suit and possibly prevail. And so that's just the, the tension, right? The tension, his sort of reputation against, you know, getting some justice for John Benet Ramsey, you know, finding the true culprit, making sure they're not available to commit another crime. Yeah, there's a tension there. How do you think he would be able to prevail in a defamation suit if he were able to prevail in one? Um, I think if, if you unpack the show and some of the statements made in the show and maybe uh, evaluate the evidence, it's possible that things were presented as fact that weren't fact, that there were untruths there. I don't, you know, you'd have to kind of go line by line. sounds like they're trying to be very, very careful, and so they may have been careful enough. But at the same time, you know, he's an adult now, but uh, accusing a child of a crime like that is a, is a pretty serious thing, especially everything he's been through. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that can happen, actually, is in defamation suits, a jury may be so sympathetic that they rule incorrectly, and that has its own value, even though it's likely to get overturned on appeal, or maybe the judge won't even enter the judgment, Uh, but just the fact that the jury was swayed can sometimes make an impression. Right. So So even losing, you can sometimes win. Uh, a little bit in some of these cases. But it's hard. It, it's very hard if you're the person that's targeted. Uh, you can see why the, def- the way that the U.S. sort of uh, our speech law, it, you can see that we benefit when we learn a lot of things and we benefit when the truth eventually comes out. But if we're targeted, especially with a falsehood or what we believe to be a falsehood, and people are just very carefully to couch it as an opinion, yeah, it's, it's uh, horrifying. But on the other hand, like I said, the lawyer in me says if this as is, is distasteful as some people may find it, if this leads to actual justice and a correct outcome in a case, I guess I have to be in favor of it. All right. Well, this was an incredibly illuminating conversation, and I love getting the lawyer in you perspective as well as the pop culture consumer in you perspective. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with me about this. This has oh. really been very interesting. With a pleasure. Bartow. She's a professor of law and she's the director of the Center for Intellectual Property at UNH School of Law. And she's also an expert in Internet speech. Now, Kevin. Yeah. I think you murdered someone. That's my opinion. It's totally fine for me to say that. How do you feel right now? 
And you say that on my podcast? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, it's absolutely right. You, one can have their opinion. It's just, like you said, from, from our training, it's not something that we would do. And as part of, you know, when we're sort of a larger machine, when we're part of a publishing house or news organization, and you're dealing with media lawyers, I mean, they are very conservative. I think you should say, you know, lawyers are going to be conservative and tell you not to do these things, not because you you couldn't get away with it, but because you shouldn't tempt it. I mean, I could go through the intersection when the light's green and someone's running a red light. I'm not going to be at fault, but I'm going to get hit by another car and right. it's going to be a real pain. So we have a professional code which not only informs the way we work, but it also protects us. So while she says, you know, you have a lot more leeway than you think, you know, I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's not for me, though. What about you, Toby? I mean, the leeway that you might have technically, does being able to look yourself in the mirror also play into this when you think about things that people should and shouldn't say in a broadcast medium about whether or not somebody committed a serious crime who hasn't previously been named a suspect in that crime? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's not even like a professional thing. It's just like human, I, I shouldn't say human decency, because I think you can be, a, uh, just have a different outlook on these things. But my outlook is that I would not, there's never been a time in my life where I felt like I've had enough information to accuse somebody of something serious who's not already on the radar or something. So I, I guess I haven't really been confronted with that situation, but I would have to feel really, really sure to the point of like actually having seen something because I think I would just have enough self-doubt and the consequences, obviously, of being wrong about that to the person that you're accusing. Yeah, I'd be kind of racked with nerves about that, about being wrong in that situation. Laura, we heard Anne talking about like the balance of power in these situations. And I think about, you know, the fact that the Ramses, you know, they still have money, as far as I know. And we know that CBS obviously has money. So it's a little bit of a different situation. But, you know, I think a lot about, you know, how if we were to defame somebody on this show and it was somebody with means, we'd be a lot more scared than if we defamed our next door neighbor. You know what I mean? So I, I guess what I'm wondering and I, I want to know from you is like, do you think that Burke has standing here? You know, we had that demonstration that we saw on the show with the 10 year old boy using the flashlight. Of course, this whole thing was couched as opinion based on expert analysis. But do you think he has standing in a lawsuit to sue CBS for airing this special? I think he probably will. You know, it sounds like that's where things are heading. I can see it from his perspective. They clearly pointed at him. They showed the tapes of him being interviewed when he was a little kid, speculated a lot on those. They had the demonstration. I felt like they tried to kind of cover themselves a little bit with that disclaimer that stayed on at the end of the series that was, I don't know, it was on for a while. I mean, it was on for a good 30 seconds yeah, to a minute. Yeah, I actually took a photo of it. I can read it to you if you'd like. I have it here on my phone yeah. because actually I thought that was interesting too. And it was reminiscent of... Um, in episodes of Law and Order that are based on uh, real cases, they throw a disclaimer up at the beginning of the show. And when the, one thing that Kevin and I have noticed in our, you know, binge watching Law and Order for the other podcast is that the longer it stays up, the closer or maybe more <laughs> high profile the case is they're talking about. It was louder the uh, the lawyer art yelled at them saying. You're doing what about who? Exactly. So it feels like they're really trying to cover themselves by keeping it up for a long time. Let's see. I have it. The killing of Jean Benet Ramsey is a crime that, to this day, remains unsolved. The opinions and conclusions of the investigators who appear on this program about how it may have occurred represent just some of a number of possible scenarios. 
John Ramsey and Burke Ramsey have denied any involvement in the crime, including in recent televised interviews. We encourage viewers to reach their own conclusions. That was the um, disclaimer. Yeah, like she said, it does sort of leave the, well, we're saying that this is one of any. And she did say, if you went line by line through the transcript, you might find some phrases where people are saying, this is what happened, as opposed to it's our opinion, or this could have happened, or whatever. You know, in a way, I'm like, if they feel like they want to do that and put it out there. They're right. Then, you know, that's their thing, and that's fine. You know, haters going to hate. Did I just say haters going to hate? You did. I, I don't know why. <laughs> well, speaking of haters going to hate, though, we've gotten a lot of flack because we have said we wouldn't do that. You know, if somebody else decides to accuse somebody of a crime, they can do that. We're just saying we wouldn't do that. Right. right. Is that what you're getting yeah, at? Yeah, but I was actually going to get a, is more or less to what end? And I think this was sort of the last question they posed at the end of the uh, the four hours was why I do this. And I'm like, well, what does that do? Especially if you're doing an extrajudicial investigation where you're a bunch of people or you're one person or you're a whole army and you're you're looking at one or two people and you don't have arrest authority or the authority to prosecute somebody. What does that accomplish? Well, I, I think kind of a related thing to me that I was thinking about is at the end of the day, it's like, what do you want to have done? What's the outcome supposed to be here? Like, suppose Burke did do it. Are you going to try him for something he did when he was 10 years old? Which 20 apparently years you legally old? can't. So at the end of the day, other than clearing up some questions in people's minds, but if it's really him, I, I just don't know what happens with that. Now, we are going to talk about the podcast Accused next week, and I'm looking forward to revisiting this conversation next week because... In that podcast, they directly address to what end are we doing this? And it is very, very interesting. And it could not be any more different from this, but it's very interesting. And I can't wait to hear what you guys have to think about it. I just want to pivot for a minute to the other true crime podcast that we've been talking about. We talked about it last week in the dark. In the episode of that show that dropped this week, Madeline Barron tells the story of Jacob Wetterling's neighbor, Dan. Laura reminded me of you. Oh, my God. Um, I have a neighbor, Dan. (laughs) Every time she would talk about neighbor, Dan, yeah. (laughs) He lived for years as the person of interest in this case, which, of course, turned out to be false and basically ruined his life. Uh, It was like 20 years of him being under suspicion. And, Kevin, that was a leak to that reporter, right? Oh, yeah. Who started hunting him around from from inside the sheriff's department or something, right? (laughs) She knew where he was working, then absolutely. Right. Now, I'm wondering, Laura, you know, investigators sometimes do have a person of interest that, you know, remains on the radar and that they make public and that something dogs them for a long time. If in this case it turns out that it's just wrong, do you think that investigators should somehow be held to account or apologize or in some way make a reparation to somebody whose life has been inexorably altered as a result of being a person of interest for decades? Yeah, that's a tough one because, you know, they're they're not going to do it. They're not going to make any sort of apology to somebody. But in this case with neighbor Dan here, it's like, I mean, this poor guy, when you hear what he went through and what his life came to, it's awful. And then when Madeline was interviewing the sheriff and she asked him that question outright, he was just like, nope. Or I think it was in the press conference they asked. So it's it's a tough call because I think this is part of the reason why in some cases investigators don't release names and information in cases where it could harm the investigation. But it also, once that name's out there, it's out there. Well, the term person of interest is relatively modern because usually we would talk about a suspect or we would talk about a witness. There was a time where if police wanted to talk to 
a certain person and they put the name out, a label would be put on them as being a suspect. That's what we're talking about. It's it's we're identifying somebody in a manner in which we're implying they committed the crime. And so person of interest was supposed to be a catch-all phrase that could mean this is an eyewitness or this is somebody who has some information or this is the person that we think did it. But again, it's sort of, you know, with language, it's, yeah, it's, it continues to sort of morph and people interpret person of interest to mean this is the suspect. That's a very law enforcement phenomenon, the language morphing. I mean, officer involved shooting used to mean something different. And now officer-involved shooting has come to mean an officer shot somebody. And the officer-involved shooting is the label that's been put on it to sort of keep it I mean, The media is, it is mostly responsible in both of those cases. Exactly. Well, I, I think part of the reason why person of interest has that connotation is at least the, the first time I can remember hearing it used very much was around the, uh, the 2001 anthrax investigation yep. right after 9-11 when they identified first this guy whose name was Stephen Hatfill. He was a person of interest and he was dogged in, in fighting back and, and clearing his name and was very uh, stubborn in that way. And then once he was cleared, they got another guy, this guy Bruce Ivins, who certainly mm-hmm. seemed like sort of a strange guy. But, you know, the reason why they did this, and I, and I believe I'm right I'm remembering this correctly, was to put pressure on these guys. Right, right. To put psychological pressure on them as an aid in the investigation. And Bruce Ivins eventually committed suicide before he was cleared. Using it as an investigative technique to ruin somebody's life, to put pressure on them so that they might confess. I mean, that to me seems to cross a line, especially when they're innocent. There's no recourse for the person who's been wrongly identified. One of the things that came up in the episode of In the Dark, as well as the Jean Benet special, is the use of profiling to determine the kind of person who might have committed a crime, which very often does lead to the so-called people of interest. You mentioned the anthrax guys. There's the Olympic Park bomber Richard Jewell, who mm-hmm. was, I think, a victim of, he fit a profile that they were looking for. The Washington, D.C. sniper case, the absolute opposite of the profile that was devised. I know that, Laura, we heard Kevin say he's a fan of profiling, but profiling has problems, right? It does. And I say, I, I have to say, I'm a fan of profiling. I find it very interesting. Drink. I know. <laughs> I'm out of wine now. I, I'm fascinated by human nature and mental health and all of those issues. But there are some issues. You know, there's cases where incorrect information from profilers can lead to a false positive or a false negative so that they may find a suspect who appears to fit a profile and then stop investigating other people. And, you know, they may ignore somebody who's actually guilty because they don't fit the profile. There's a really good article in The New Yorker about this. And they actually interviewed a bunch of different people that are in the top of the field. And they talked about different cases where this was used and cases where it worked and cases where it didn't work. And one of the cases was uh, Derek Todd Lee, who is the Baton Rouge serial killer. And so the FBI profile described whoever the serial killer was as a white male, blue collar worker between 25 and 35 years old, someone who wants to be seen as someone who is attractive and appealing to women. However, their level of sophistication in interacting with women, especially women who are above him in the social strata, is low. Any contact he has had with women he has found attractive would be described by these women as awkward. 
so in the end, they were correct about this person, the killer being a blue collar male in the age range. But this guy actually turned out to be very charming and outgoing, the sort of person that would put on a cowboy hat and snakeskin boots and be out, you know, whipping it up at the bars. And um, he wasn't white as the FBI thought he was actually black. So that's a case where it was partially right and partially wrong. You know, it definitely sounds like it can narrow down in cases where they need some guidance, but it's not the end all to be all is sort of the other side of the coin. What do you think of this idea of fallibility in profiling, Kevin? Well, I think like in any investigative technique, you know, we talked about fingerprinting and DNA and false confessions. I think profiling is an excellent investigative tool. It's not so much a great prosecutorial tool. I mean, it's supposed to guide you towards somebody. I mean, if a bank is robbed and you see two people running away, you're like, well, we should check out those people <laughs> and not just the other people on the street. It's somebody who's poor right? needed money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a simplistic way. But you're like, well, that's an obvious thing. Now, you may run down, catch them on the street and find out they're two joggers. OK, but you weren't wrong to say that's a good guess. I think it's the closest to Sherlock Holmes that you can have. It's deduction. It's not an exact science, but it really can help because we're talking about behavioral patterns that are shared. It is things like, you know, whether or not you insert yourself into an investigation or you move away or if you stage the scene and whether or not this is an organized killing or an unorganized killing. It can also be about the way you dress, which is why sometimes serial killers like mod cloth. No, they don't. <laughs> you don't awesome. think a serial killer would like mod lady cloth? might. I think awesome people like mod cloth, not serial killers. Yeah, that's why they get caught. Modcloth is your go serial lady killers. Serial lady <laughs> killers. Right, that's right. Uh, Modcloth is your go-to spot for fashion as unique as you, serial killer. So they have a very wide range of styles, everything from sort of dressed up to dressed down, cool looks, not just stuff that's fashionable, but stuff that's stylish. And funky. I love me some Modcloth. I yeah. love the vintage style dresses and tops and sweaters in Modcloth. Love it. And I love the vintage housewares and accessories for the home at ModCloth. It's one of my favorite uh, websites. I think somebody tweeted at us. They bought their wedding dress through ModCloth. I think it's someone did. Using uh, promo code CRIME, CRIME, and they got $20 off their wedding dress. So nice. I guess we're kind of like at that woman's wedding. Sort of. Sort wow. of. In, in a, a weird way. Yes, in a very weird way. So you can use the free Mod Style service for dedicated one-on-one -on -one sizing and fit tips. And your personalized styling support. So if you can't bring your sister who's going to get all bitchy and judgmental about the dress you're wearing, why don't I get like a real professional? Laura, you're laughing a little too hard at that, I think. Did I, did I she was an only child. She's not laughing at you. Oh, she's not laughing no, at I'm that? No, I'm not. I have a brother. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right. Who <laughs> was absolutely no help, right? Carry on. It was just the way you said it, Kevin. It made me laugh. Okay. All right. So right now, you can shop their latest collection and find all your new fall favorites. Go to M-O-D- C-L-O-T-H dot com and enter promo code CRIME at checkout to get $20 off an order of $100 or more. Make every day extraordinary with Mod Cloth. Mod Cloth. Mod Cloth. Promo code CRIME. crime. Promo code CRIME. crime. All right. I'd like to move on to my favorite part of the podcast right now, a little something I like to call, I don't have a voice, Kevin, so can you say it? Yeah. The CRIME OF THE WEEK! <laughs> A Florida woman, she is pledged to pay $50,000 to commit an assault. Mm. But many would say it is a long time coming because what she's shelling out for is the once-in-a-lifetime chance to punch widely reviled pharmaceutical CEO Martin Shkreli in the face. <laughs> 
This is the, this is the uh, pharma bro. Yes, you probably remember that Shkreli is the self-proclaimed robber baron who left the evil job of hedge fund management to take on the more evil job of jacking up the price of a life-saving drug by 5,000%. Jeez. Shkreli auctioned off the chance for some lucky hater to punch or slap him in the face this week. The auction was to raise money for the family of Mike Coolidge, his former PR consultant who died unexpectedly. The lucky bidder is a woman only known as Katie, and not only will she get the chance to give Shkreli his due, she will also have her bid matched as a donation to the family by Shkreli. So, good cause or not, Laura Bricker, is there anyone that you would pay to punch in the face? <laughs> um, there probably is, but I won't say it publicly. Sorry, um, Toby. No, I, I would say in a fictional world, I would like to punch Prince Joffrey in the face on Ooh. the Game of Thrones. He's very slappable. Oh, I hate him. You mean Nellie Olson? Oh, Nellie. Yes, Nellie Olson. She used to really irk me as uh, well. Yeah, look at a side-by-side photo of Prince Joffrey and Nellie Olson. They look like exactly the same person. <laughs> That's creepy. But I want to know, back to this uh, Katie, is she going to be listening to the Wu-Tang Clan when she's uh, winding yeah, up her no punch? Kidding. Oh, that very expensive <laughs> record that he bought? Yeah. The, the, the only pressing available. What about you, Toby Ball? If you had the chance to punch somebody in the face, maybe even for a good cause, who would you punch? Well, first of all, why doesn't Martin Shkreli is like loaded? Why doesn't he just fucking give them some money? <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> all right, so that's one and two. This is I'm sure He'd like get this... punched in the face and open his own wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what was the question again? Who would I want to punch in the face? Yes. I don't. I abhor violence, so I think I would prefer to hold the arms of that guy from Wells Fargo while Elizabeth Warren punches him in the face. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Good answer. Good answer. I'm really surprised that Laura didn't say, what's his face for making a murderer? The punchable howdy duty guy. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, Kaczynski. Yeah. Len Kaczynski. Len Kaczynski. Well, you know, he's got cancer. I can't punch him. Oh, I didn't know that. Take it back. Take it back. Take it back. What about you, Kevin? Who would you punch in the face if you had the opportunity to? I think Shirelli. I want to get in line. I think he's he's very punchable. In fact, I would like to bring a sock filled with butter. <laughs> Is that a thing? Yeah, I could fill a sock like with a butter. a Catholic school thing or something? No, I'd swing it over my head and smack him in the face. Or I'd spend the money and I'd say... Uh, Martin, I'm tapping out. Taking over for me is my friend Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Nice. If anybody deserves a slap in the face, it's him. Well, we should probably end it up on that note of um, unparalleled violence. Wait, who are you going to punch? Yeah. Yeah, Rebecca. I want to punch. Stop looking at me like that. I want to punch this cold in the face. I want to punch it in the face. You know, I will say something. The wonderful Ira Glass, who hosts This American Life, I don't know. I want to say like once every few episodes, he hosts the show with a cold. And I just think, like, you know, I know it's other people American work. Life. Yeah. And he always says, like, sorry, I have a cold. And I was like, you know, other people work there. Like, freaking Sarah Koenig works there. You could just let her host this week. And here I am doing it because the show must go on. But and because it, of that, you want to punch Ira Glass? No. <laughs> I just, I want to apologize to Ira Glass because I previously did want to punch him in the face when he had a cold. And I no longer do because here I am. Oh. I want to punch the cold in the face. That's who I want to punch. It's like the first steps towards world peace. It is. Oh. It is. So we should probably end it on that lovely note. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to tweet to you, how can they find you on the Twitter? At Laura Bricker. Moose meat! <laughs> Hashtag moose meat. Toby Ball, if our listeners want to reach you on the Twitter, how can they do that? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if people want to tweet with you about what a wonderful laundry doer you are, how can they do that? <laughs> I got your cold. <laughs> that was a real sneeze. 
Oh no! I'm, I'm, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> I gotta wipe it off. You do. It's gross. I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. Directions for how to do that are posted right on our website, CrimeWritersOn.com. While you're there, buy some stuff using our Amazon link. Sign up for our newsletter. Get more info on our other podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. And if you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners discover the podcast. Our line producer is Mr. Henry Lavoie, and our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, right next to our hot water heater in a closet in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Is it okay for me to say that? Yeah, I have an opinion. Yeah, you were supposed to go into the ad. Like, what is the matter with what, you? What is this? Is this is when you try to set me up. <laughs> this is literally the point at which you were supposed to. We talking? talked about this five minutes before we started the show. I can't be your monkey. Wait, <laughs> you pre-planned these things? Only, only, no. only when I'm sick. Oh, my God. I just want to do it. This is... Rebecca... If you hate feeling like an adult stuck in a dorm room, you might have... I just have one thing to say about that ad. What? If you feel like an adult stuck in a dorm room, you should feel better because the person reading this ad is sitting in his underwear sitting in a closet right now. If you hate feeling like an adult stuck in a dorm room, you might appreciate the new Havenly app, the easiest way to decorate your home. Once you've downloaded the app, you'll have access to free home design consultations. And if a consultation inspires you, you can work with a Havenly interior designer to lay out and shop for your dream space in an easy four-step design process. Use code CRIME at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.